I'm reading uh, John chapter 17 and reading uh, verses 1 all the way through to uh, verse 26. It's entitled in the NIV, Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked forward, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you gave you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Jesus then prays for his disciples. I've revealed, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those you, get, you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And then Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be, may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want, you, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have given for me may be in them, and that I, may, I myself may be in them. Thank you, Bill. The teaching of our Lord is over, for now at least.
and Jesus is alone. He's maybe in a quiet courtyard somewhere, possibly even in the Garden of Gethsemane or somewhere near the the Brook Kidron on the way there. And he now turns to prayer. It's probably close to midnight on the Thursday night or very, very early on the Thursday, on the Friday morning. And this is quite simply the greatest prayer ever recorded. Some people call it Christ's high priestly prayer. Others simply refer to it as the true Lord's Prayer. However we refer to it, I believe we tread on holy ground here. It is here that we get, I believe, our, our deepest glimpse into the heart of Jesus. Sometimes when you listen to a person's heartfelt prayer, you're given an insight into the deepest recesses of their their consciousness of God. And so it is here we have this longest and deepest prayer of Jesus. And a hundred years ago, William Milligan, the commentator, wrote this. He said, No attempt to describe this prayer can give a just idea of its sublime nature, its pathos, its touching yet exalted character, its tone at once of tenderness and triumphant expectation. We approach this morning's passage with the greatest care and the greatest reverence. And in no way can we do justice to the depth and the meaning of this prayer in in just over half an hour. So we're going to concentrate on the very latter part of the prayer. And you'll see it from from the way it was read in in, in your Bible. It is divided very clearly into three sections. Jesus prays briefly for himself. Then he prays for those 11 remaining disciples And then he goes on to pray for us, if you like, for those who would believe uh, from the message that the disciples first gave. And we're going to concentrate on that final section, but I would like to say one or two things very briefly about the first two sections. We find here a number of themes that go throughout the prayer. One of the themes is, is glorification. Jesus is praying that obedience, especially his own obedience, will bring glory to God. So will the obedience of of his disciples. It's all about the glory of God. It's about survival. This prayer is about survival. He prays that his followers will survive the enmity of the world. They will remain united despite their differences. He prays that they'll understand and they'll use the tools that he has given them. He wants them to know God's love and to obey God's commands. And the final theme that we see here quite prominently is the theme of holiness. The question is asked, will those who follow him emulate the holiness that that he's demonstrated? Will their lives so reflect his own life? Will Will he be so transparent in them, in us, that they become living testaments to the world? So Jesus prays first of all for himself in the first few verses. But he's not praying for himself the way we pray for ourselves. He doesn't give the Father a list of requests and requirements and petitions that he wants his Father to fulfill. Really, the petition is a single one, and it's in verse 2 where he says, Father, glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. That's at the heart of his prayer for himself. And it's not a self-serving prayer, but it's a request that he might glorify his Father. And he finds, we find Jesus talking to his Father about his efforts on earth to glorify him and to be obedient to his will. But the work on earth now is almost done. The work of incarnation is almost complete. And he's almost returning to glory. 
the glory that he, he left willingly, the glory that he experienced even before the creation. There's one slightly puzzling verse in verse 3 when he talks about uh, this being... Uh, sorry, no, I'm going to come to that a little bit later. I'm going to hold that for a moment. I'd like to draw to it, 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 verse 3 to your attention because I think we have here a wonderful definition of what the Bible calls salvation. Look at verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a wonderful definition that we can use when people say, what do you mean? What do you mean by salvation? What do you mean by being a Christian? Here it is. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Of course, knowing God means more than just giving the kind of intellectual assent, so intellectual assent to say, yes, 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 I know, I know God exists. The notion of knowing, as we find it here, is one of intimacy and one of personal experience. And this knowledge of God means obedience and loving God. And what is, what is so important here is it emphasizes the fact that if one says one knows God, one must also include a knowledge of Christ. And Jesus himself said, to deny the Son is to deny the Father. This is really important, because the only true knowledge of God that has been delivered to humanity through the incarnation and the sacrificial death of Christ, without Jesus, access to God is impossible. And you've got friends, and I've got friends, and they say to, th say to you things like this, oh, we're not Christians, but we do believe in God. They're misled. Only those who recognize God the Son know God the Father. It's very clear from this passage. But I'd like to go on very quickly to the second part of the prayer where he prays for his disciples and just share one or two things here. There are a few concerns that he has for his disciples. He's been with them now the best part of three, maybe just a little bit longer than three years. He's going to be with them a few hours more, and then he's not going to see them for several days and then he's going to meet up with him later. But this is the last time we really find Christ speaking in any length. From now on, we'll see the odd sentence here or there. We don't have any record of his days with them after the resurrection. But the record we have has him speaking very little, very little after this. But he's very concerned, and his, his main concerns are for his disciples are this. First of all, that they, he wants them to remain united. Look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy, coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name and the name you gave me, so that they may be one as you and I are one. What's remarkable about this is Jesus is asking that the unity the disciples would experience would be comparable to the unity that he has with his own Father. That's remarkable. He's concerned because he's not going to be there in person any longer to oversee their work and their relationships with one another and with the world. But he wants their lives together to be characterized by these unifying features that make up the relationship between Christ and his own Father. What are those features? Mutual love, mutual respect, constant communication, obedience to the cause. He wants them to remain united. And, and, and we, we praise God that throughout the record of the book of Acts in the early church, they do indeed remain united. They have one or two little tiffs here and there, but they're quickly sorted out. 
And their unity brings about the, the development of this movement that took over the ancient world in a, in a matter of centuries. The second concern he has about the disciples is for their sustenance and their strength in a world that is not going to be very friendly with them. He says in verse 15, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The assignment that Jesus has given his disciples is a dangerous one. You might say it's almost mission impossible. They have his word and they have the Holy Spirit, as we saw in the last chapter, to remind them of all they've been taught and to keep them secure. And this word, this revelation that they have, will be the essential equipment in their testimony and their survival. And notice he, he, he prays for special protection from the evil one. Jesus fully understands the power of the evil one. He's already lost one of the original 12 disciples to the evil one. And so he realizes that representing the gospel in the world is an invitation to a genuine battle. And the disciples will have to contend with these powers since they are the ones remaining in the world. God's name will be their refuge. I just love that verse 11. Protect them by the power of your name. It's like the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, who says, and we sing it so often, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. They that the righteous run into it and they're safe. And the third concern that Jesus has about his disciples is his concern for their ongoing holiness. If you look down to verse 17 and into verse 19 as well, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be sanctified. I think Jesus is recognizing here a spiritual dilemma that, that, that applies to all disciples of all ages. We live in the world, but we are not of the world. The Bible teaches that in this context the word world is not a place on the map, but a spiritual domain an atmosphere of darkness and, and unbelief. And Jesus is here praying that while they may be living in the world, that they may be sanctified. In other words, they may be holy, they may be set apart. And the way of achieving this state of holiness is by separation. God is God by virtue of the fact that he is separate. He is transcendent. He is other. He is totally separated and so for the disciples, and then and now, to be holy is not to enter into a state of some kind of perfection, but it is to live a life that is so aligned to God and his word that it reflects his passions, especially for good against evil. A life that is aligned is a life that is said to be a holy life, attached to God's plans and purposes. And this is what he wants for his disciples. And in verse 19, this little slightly puzzling little verse where he says, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be sanctified. And you wonder, why does the Son of God have to sanctify himself? Surely he is as holy as can be. But I think in my, he's having in mind this, this great mission of his that is coming to an end. 
I think he's referring to his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, all part of a huge act of consecration that his disciples will benefit from because he says they too then will be sanctified. Through his death and his resurrection, the disciples will will experience something they've never known before. Jesus' death is going to enable them to, to know a new holiness, a new identity, a deep attachment to God. And it's therefore no surprise that the following events of these next few days, and just before Jesus departs to go to his Father, he prepares them with all of these teachings, especially of the last few chapters. And they will receive the Holy Spirit in a whole new way. And they'll be ready for the commission that he's given them. And then we come to the final six or seven verses where Jesus prays for those of us who will become his disciples in the generations to come. I'm reading from verse 20 again. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and I, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to me in complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The more I read that, the more a question comes to my mind, and it's this question. Based on what we've read here, how does the church today, how does the church today act in such a way that really glorifies God? What thing... Things come to Jesus' mind as he's now thinking and praying about our activity in the world many hundreds of years after this prayer is spoken. And I believe he prays for four very specific and distinct things. Some of them are directly mentioned, others are deeply implied. Some have called them the four W's of the church's mission. Others call them the four pillars of the church. And I share them with you this morning. And the first thing I think he's talking about here is worship. Worship. People are looking for the reality of God. Modernism and and rationalism suggested we could do away with God and we could do away with any idea of religion. But postmodern thinking has drawn the opposite conclusion. Not Christian, but spiritual interest is everywhere today. Whether it's exercised in a church or a mosque or a synagogue or some new age temple... But this does not mean people are not today looking for rational religious certainties. They're not looking for the recitation of creeds. They're not looking for uh, religion that is necessarily built around pulpits and pews and choirs. Or Or they're not looking for some kind of denomination. 
People today are not flocking homewards towards Anglicanism or Catholicism or Methodism or Congregationalism. So what are people seeking? They're seeking for places and experiences where God, as they see him, where God is real, where God seems present, where he can be felt, where spiritual ecstasy and mystical realities are commonplace occurrences. That is why the quality of worship in our churches today is so very important. It is of paramount concern to many. And Jesus prays that his disciples will experience this reality of the presence of God in their Christian experience. He prays they will experience the indwelling of God's Spirit. And it is this quality of real experience, this authentic spirituality, that can be ours because we worship a transcendent God, a God who is entirely other, yet a God who is both loving and holy. And we express this belief in our worship. So how is your experience of worship this morning? Especially in this place on a Sunday morning. need to say that worship is not just singing. Worship is the attitude and the energy and the enthusiasm we bring to every part of what we do here on a Sunday morning. This includes the prayers and the giving of the offering, the reading of the word, and even the hearing of the news about what God is doing in our church. We have a worshipful worshipful attitude to all that is done here. The singing may often seem to be the most obvious, but it's not all of it. And this is not just an internal thing. I believe when people come to our church, and I've brought neighbors here on the odd occasion, when people come to our church, it is what first appeals to them or turns them off. Our welcome team can do, and they do do, a sterling job, and we're great people at greeting others. But what they experience as we worship is critical. And yet, and I'm going to be absolutely honest with you, and I'm glad that this is my last sermon for a while, so you'll be glad as well. I just see too many folk not singing. Not singing. And I know sometimes the music doesn't fit, and sometimes I battle with it myself, but hey... And sometimes I see people singing with their hands in their pockets. Now, you don't have to wave your arms all over the place. But can you sing to worship with your hands in your pockets? Folk with their phones switched on when they don't even need to have their phones here. Folk coming to church without their Bibles and never, never really taking any notes about what's being said. Folk not making the most of the open prayer times. Isn't it strange that the open prayer times are dominated by, mostly by the elderly folk in our church? God's presence ought to be real, as real as his nature is foreign to us. We ought to be experiencing his glory here on a Sunday morning. Verse 22 says, I have given them that glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He wants us to experience his holiness. They are not of the world, isn't even I not on it of it. Sanctify them. Make them holy by your truth. He wants us to be transformed on a Sunday morning as we worship by his truth. For I for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly, truly sanctified. He wants us to be filled with his joy. Verse thirteen. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, 
so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. That's worship. And I tell you, when people come into this place as first-time visitors, they're looking, they're thinking, they're feeling our worship. The second pillar, the second W, if you like, is the Word. All of our worship and all other Christian experiences must be grounded in the truth of the Word of God. People are quick to notice when they are hearing a false prophet. And there are many false prophets, false apostles and charlatans purporting to be representatives of the Christian faith. And this has always been so, and it's never more so than today. We see these self-appointed people and very dodgy, sometimes faith healers and others, and, and the church has got to give guidance here. The church must anchor all it says and does in the word of God that is given historically to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You see it in verse 6. You see it in verse 14. I have revealed to you those that you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and today they have obeyed your word. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Without the objective guidance of this historic revelation, the church becomes rudderless and it opens itself to all manner of false teaching. Sanctify them in verse 17 by the truth. Your word of truth. Such teaching means that those who are seeking after the reality of God will be able to grow wisdom and knowledge and experience. And the first thing that such knowledge teaches is that any experience that departs from loyalty to Jesus Christ is mistaken experience. The Spirit of God never, ever contradicts what has already been given to us by Jesus himself in history. Jesus says when teaching of the Holy Spirit, he says he will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is to come. We need the word today if we are to abide in the vine. If we are to be sheep to his shepherd, we always return to what we have seen and what we have heard in him. The worship is one part, the word is the next part. And the third part is welcome. Welcome. At the heart of the life of the church, I believe, is its search for emphasis on unity and fellowship. And this is hugely appealing to those who peer into our doors from time to time. Just as they may be turned on or turned off by our worship, just as they may be turned on or turned off by the word, so they may be turned on or turned off by what they see in terms of our unity. And at this point, I'd like to turn back just a couple of pages to chapter 15 and verse 9, where Christ is teaching his disciples about this unity in one of the most tremendous passages of Scripture when you want to talk about Christian unity. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 15, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay one down one's life for one's friends. 
So I would say to you this morning that people are not only looking for authentic spiritual experiences and sound instruction. I believe people are looking for genuine community. And this is one of the current themes, I believe, for the last 20, 30, even 40 years, where we find more and more people feeling alienated, lonely, and generally disconnected from place and kinship. And Jesus prays over and over again that the church will be a community of very strong unity. And if you trace this theme of unity through this chapter, you will quickly see just how much it weighs on his mind. In verse 11, verse 21, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, they may be in us. If we continue to follow the same theme in John's later letters, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, particularly 1st John, we see that there is already disunity in John's own church. And this is what he's writing about. And it's not unlike the disunity we see in the church today. In the macro, external sense, people live together in the name of Christ, and then in in that name they contend for every manner of self-interest. And that was happening in John's church. And this may be why Jesus keeps repeating this new commandment, love one another. Why is it so important? Why is this unity so important? Well, beyond the obvious that unity is a lot more fun than disunity. It makes things easier. And that unity makes living and worshipping so much more pleasant. There's a much deeper reason, in a sense a twofold reason. And the first you see in, in verse 21. So that they may be one just as you and I are one. That's the first reason why Christian unity is so important. That they may be one just as you and I are one. So I think what he's saying here, that one of the purposes of unity is to promote our fellowship with God himself. Jesus links the unity of all believers to our individual Christian lives. We see in chapter 17 in these verses that I've just mentioned, Jesus says that the, one, the, the oneness we experience with him should lead to a oneness of experience with one another. So when this relationship becomes a relationship of unity between us and him, so the relationship, the horizontal relationship increases, and vice versa. As you and I become closer to one another, so our relationship with God deepens. It seems to imply that unity is not so much a byproduct of talking about it, discussion, diplomacy, or policy, but it's about worship. Unity is about worship, it's about repentance, it's about prayer. And it seems to imply that the degree to which we seek God together, not just individually, together, will determine how much God will assist us to find common ground in our lives together. And the second reason why this unity is so important, in verse 22, they may be in us so that the world might see that you have sent me. The second clear purpose of true Christian unity is evangelistic. Jesus is here praying that the church locally and universally may be so united that the world might come to believe that Jesus himself was sent by God the Father. If we are not united, the world has every right to say, 
we don't believe in Jesus. That's as blunt as we can put it here. If they see us disunited, they have every right to say, we don't take your Jesus. Disunity has the opposite effect. It simply turns people away. Commentator J. Carl Laney put it this way, in keeping with our Lord's prayer here, the goal of the body of the Christ should be to grow into such unity that the world will truly recognize us as one. A display of such unity in this very individualistic society of ours will serve as a shining testimony to the world of the divine person and work of Christ. One could say so much more about Christian unity right here in our local church, but maybe the time has come to stop talking about it and start doing it and living it. So we've had worship, we've had the word, we've had welcome, and we come to the final W, the final pillar of the church, and that is witness. They also may be in us so that the world may see. So that the world may see. Just as Jesus had a defined mission in the world, so do we. And if you see here the unity of the church and the quality of its life and its experiences must lead not only to the glory of God, but it must become a powerful testimony to the world. We as Christians in the world here today are to do the work of Christ in the world. We are his hands, we are his feet. We are here to bring the kingdom of God into reality everywhere we go. And so this means that even whether we find ourselves under attack and experiencing conflict from our adversaries, our unity with Christ and our unity with one another will serve as a profound witness to those who oppose us. And this has been the story of 20th and 21st century Christians in places as far afield as Vietnam and India, Sri Lanka, Ethiopia, Sudan, China, and many parts of the Near and the Middle East. When the church has been confronted with staggering persecution in these countries, the church's unity in so many occasions has so impressed the oppressors that many have converted to Christianity and joined the ranks of the church. And yet there's another tension that arises here from this theme. As the church, as we separate ourselves from the world, we can lose our ability, if we're not careful, our ability to connect with the world, with the unbelievers still in the world. In other words, our pursuit of godliness may, if we're not careful, compromise our ability to reach the world that Jesus wants us to reach. In the former Soviet Union, for example, Pastor Sergei Nikolaev writes about what happened to the church in Russia when it was isolated entirely for 75 years. The church lost their common language and even their common culture with secular Russians. And unbelievers began to feel as uncomfortable with Christians as the Christians felt about these new Russians on their doorstep. We must be very aware that the purity the holiness and the necessary separation of the church from the world is sometimes at odds with a church that has a mission to evangelize the world. And we need to understand. And it's the task, I believe, of Christian leadership to ensure with the greatest care that at the local level at least, these necessary boundaries are clearly defined. When and how are we as believers truly apart from the world 
and yet at the same time living in the world and ministering to it. That's so critical. So here we have the four pillars then. I'll leave them with you. Worship. The transcendental and supernatural nature of our communion with God who is real. Transcendental, supernatural nature of our communion with God who is real. The God who is absolutely here. Then there's the word, our commitment to holding the scriptures as the ultimate guide to all our teaching and all our attempts to serve him. Then there's the welcome, our essential unity as a community of God's people in this place at this time. And we're open to all who would come and share the worship and the word with us. We're open to all who would come and share the worship and the word with us and witness We are not here for our own sake, but for the glory of God and for the mission of taking the word into every home and workplace in our town. Now, over the last many years, I've worshipped in conservative, reformed churches where there's been exceptional teaching and a strong sense of community, but no transcendence, little evidence of the supernatural working of the Spirit in the congregation. And I've been in churches with remarkable worship practices, but little or no teaching. And the teaching that there is is unfortunately rather wishy-washy and sometimes downright heretical. Still other churches I know of are completely committed to mission, to evangelism and social action, but there's little instruction in God's word or transcendent worship experience. I put to you as congregationalists here in Staines, We all need to be constantly examining the character and the work of our church. And as we serve and continue to build God's work here, we need constantly to test all we do against the vision of the church that Jesus has given us in this wonderful prayer. And I would suggest the mandate looks something or sounds something like this, and our pastor is going to pick up on this theme, I know, next Sunday. I think we have a mandate that sounds like this. And the words that I, I, found, I found helped me most. We are, first of all, an otherworldly community that experiences the supernatural God in power. We are an otherworldly community that experiences the supernatural God in power. Two, that grounds itself in the word of God. Three, that generates a family that nurtures its own members. And four, takes seriously what it is to live for Christ in the world. That's a mandate that is very important because when I look around at the world today, I see a world in serious trouble. A world that is broken. A world that is shattered. A world that is dying. And you and I know Politicians don't have the answers. We know that in this country more than most at the moment. The men and women of high business don't have the answers. The philosophers and the psychologists don't have the answers. The answer's in this mandate. The answer is if we take it seriously enough, we will begin to see the world change in our community. I'll leave it with you. We are an otherworldly community that experiences the supernatural God in power, that grounds itself in the word of God, that generates a family that nurtures its members, and that takes seriously 
what it is to live for Christ, live for Christ in this world. Heavenly Father, help us to take our mandate with the utmost seriousness. Help us to worship you as you would have us worship you. Help us to put the word at the very center of our lives. Help us to find real unity and love for one another. And take us into the world, we pray, to complete the mission that you sent us for. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.